partner John and I tackled this case from Patterson, New Jersey, anti-violence activist by the name of Najee Seabrooks, who lunged at police with a knife. As a result, a lot of bad information was spread throughout the community about how the whole thing went down. We take the 911 call and analyze that from top to bottom. We take the officer's body cam and show that the negotiations lasted for quite a while. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube and Rumble channels if you're not already there. Download the podcast if you're not already there. You can also find us on Instagram at the underscore com underscore center. Enjoy this episode, which originally aired March 30th, 2023. City council members announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. We're calling for defunding the police. Shootings in New York City have more than doubled this year. in the comp center with drew breezy that's drew my co-host over there 29 years of police and dispatch experience and we're going to break down a case tonight that's going to be one for the ages this is something huge that's happening in the state of new jersey in the city of patterson to be specific and this is i don't know if this shooting flew under the radar or as you'll see maybe you'll know why but it does seem that the attorney general in new jersey has taken control of the Patterson Police Department as a result of this shooting and some other things that have gone on. And so we just want to have an open and frank discussion about what our observations are about this shooting to include the 911 calls and the negotiations. John is a 911 dispatcher and a trained and certified negotiator in the continental United States, I believe. Yep, I could do all of North America and parts of South America. That's correct. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this case. I watched uh, four and a half hours of footage from the Patterson Police Department to obtain this footage. Something that we've done differently this time than what we have done in the past is instead of scouring the internet for articles and newsreels and kind of breaking down, breaking down the news about it, I was able to find out that if you contact the Attorney General's office in the state of New Jersey, that they can provide certain downloadable links. So what I was graciously given by the attorney's office in New Jersey was essentially all the downloadable media from the case. So that was four and a half hours of body cam footage from at least seven different vantage points. Tonight, we're going to use at least four of those. Also included was there's essentially five 911 calls. There's seven audio clips in total. At one point, the suspect in the case is uh, calling nearby police departments because he's not satisfied with what he's getting from Patterson. So essentially the setup to the story is this, is that uh, one night uh, Najee Seabrooks uh, comes home at about two in the morning and he seals himself up inside his room. And uh, early in the morning, uh, he's having some kind of mental health crisis and uh, the police are called at around seven in the morning. It takes police officers a while to respond because as dispatchers and police officers know, there's always quite a bit going on. They were finally able to get on scene with two police officers, they arrived on scene. And what they found as they arrived on scene to a threats call was family members of Najee Seabrooks waiting outside. They were, they flagged down the officer. 
And at first, the officer was confused. She thought that she was actually having two calls in the same building until she realized the family members flagging her down outside were also asking for an ambulance for Najee Seabrooks because own words in the words of her brother and another female there on the scene that uh, he had possibly ingested some cannabis, smoked something bad, and that it was, it was affecting his mental state. At the point that the police officers arrived in the building, Mr. Seabrooks was already essentially locked inside the bathroom. Officers arrived on scene. They found out what was going on with him. As I said, I, he had been smoking something the night before, and he was not responding to calls from family to come out. Najee Seabrooks' his mother, other family members, and a child were all there inside the, the apartment when the officers arrived. And the body cam footage for us to break down essentially starts when the officer makes first contact at the door where Seabrooks is barricaded inside a bathroom. Just, what we put together is I, I took the information from the attorney general's office, the 911 calls, and I put it together in one video. It was very difficult to get through four and a half hours and find a way to present this to you because we're primarily a podcast. And when you listen to the body cam footage from Patterson PD, what you mostly hear are various police officers at different times standing outside the door saying Najee's name and saying, please come out. For over four, almost four and a half hours, police officers at different times are begging him, asking him to come out. He will talk about some of the negotiation tactics they use, uh, some of the uh, other tactics uh, like third-party intermediaries, which are somewhat unusual for situations like this. And you'll see that the claims that be, are being made by the media that Najee Seabrooks was denied access to people who cared about him, namely his colleagues at his anti-violence action committee or league that he worked for, that he was being denied access to be able to talk to anyone besides the police was simply not true. Uh, we'll break down some of that in terms of who he was allowed to talk to in addition to police in the scene. We know this is a, a difficult case. And I guess before we present anything, I do want to say that having watched all of it, I want to say that I'm sorry that Mr. Seabrooks has passed away. This is a regrettable incident. The police didn't want this to happen. I didn't want this to happen. And one thing that I viewed when I viewed all of this footage was I heard his mother cry. I heard his mother talking to him and sobbing and begging for him to come out. Whatever you think of the protests and things that have come out of this and whatever you think of Mr. Seabrooks and whatever you else you want to say about him, he was a human being that his family loved, his mom loved him. And it's a shame that he's dead and, and we're, we're not here to make light of that, but we want to correct some of the narrative that's been in the news that the police officer simply showed up and in typical police fashion, according to the news, as they just went in their guns blazing. What you'll see from Patterson PD is an amazing display of patience and empathy and going to almost any lengths constantly to find a way to reach Mr. Seabrooks, to find a way to convince him to cooperate. Unfortunately, it was unsuccessful, but you can see that every single person who talks to him particularly if you watch the full unedited four and a half hours as I did, has a heart for intervening in the crisis and driving a positive change. And if you're a negotiator and certainly a police officer, you can't enter any situation like this unless you have the belief that you can affect a positive outcome. And I saw that from every single police officer that spoke to him. And quite a few of those are in this footage we'll show you tonight. I, I really felt the same way when I watched the footage and I, you know, it seems like we take one step up and two steps back and it's not necessarily because of what we're doing wrong, but it doesn't matter if it's right. Sometimes it's and you know, there, there's a whole issue behind body worn cameras that we're probably going to discuss tomorrow. I mean, like, do we need, <laughs> if the public is clamoring for them as they are, I think they probably, they being the public 
probably need to start believing what they see when, when they see it, it's, it's like, you can't have it both ways. And I think the other part of that problem is they don't know what they're looking at. So they, they can just pick it apart, but it's not, you know, we're trained differently, but one piece, one piece of footage that they show constantly and it's, and it's less than two seconds was the door to the bathroom is open and you see Mr. Seabrooks inside and they fire a less lethal round and there's a reason for them to do that. It's not because they want to hurt him or they want to be mean. And he says, oh, you're going to come at me like that. And it's sort of a, an aggressive interplay and it makes it seem like Seabrooks is, makes him seem like he's uh, outraged or angry. And it certainly makes him seem like he's in his full right mind. But as we'll, as we break down this case, you could say that it's a mental health crisis. There's certainly something going on with him, but uh, we'll show the reason for the less lethal discharge. All right. I, I don't want to switch gears completely. I want to give a little background here in addition to your background. This is something else that we didn't discuss. Uh, Patterson police has, have had their own problems. In, in Namely, in, let's see, what year was that? 2017? There was four officers, a sergeant and three officers who were indicted federally for stealing money, basically for tossing drug dealers and, and taking their money and stealing their money. You know, I could read you the whole case, but I won't. I'll spare you that. I, I can tell you that the, the sergeant received prison time. I think all four of them pled to something. I, I don't, I'm not sure what the other three got, but I know that the sergeant got prison time for, you know, they greed always gets the best of them anyway. Look, how many times we have to say it? There's the only thing we hate more as good cops are bad cops. And they were weeded out. But the problem is that violates the trust of the community. And so just after that, or maybe just before that, uh, I'm not sure what the timing is, I think the mayor was indicted on a separate issue. The community's in turmoil. Once all that happens, you've lost credibility at that point. <laughs> and no one's going to believe anything you say. And like I said, no one's going to believe the body-worn camera that's literally right in front of you. You, you know, this is the video that you wanted. You know, Najee Seabrooks was an anti-violence activist within his community. He was trying to do what he could to to curb the violence or the, even, you know, police violence or, or whatever, however it was perceived. And he was killed by police. So obviously that's going to upset a lot of people right off the bat, but you have to understand that there was a reason behind what happened, which the media portrayed as just willy nilly guns a blazing. We got tired of waiting. So we just shot this guy and this is just not what happened at all. So. 911. <laughs> Two, two cop cars to, to the middle street. Okay. Yeah. For the people listening, not watching, uh, this is 911 call number one. Najee Seabrooks calls and asks police to come to his residence because he says he's received death threats. I get two cop cars to the middle street. Oh, I need your help, like. And was threat on me, so I need help back. What ha you have to tell me what happened? What's going on? I received a lot of death threats. Uh, I think some people waiting for me when I walk out. So I need help. I'm gonna escort it to my car. So okay. Um, who are you receiving death threats from? 
people. Dangerous to people. What's your phone number? What apartment are you in? Can you send two, please? Tell me some mercy. All right, we're going to get somebody out there as soon as we can. All right, thank you. Okay, so what you hear is a lot of background noise in the comm center. That's kind of showing how quiet Mr. Seabrooks is when he calls 911. But he essentially says, I have an emergency here. There's uh, people here threatening me. Can you send a police officer fast? Again, as a 911 dispatcher, what I'm hearing is a disconnect between the information he's giving me and the way that his affect seems to be responding to the situation. Normally, when people are asking for fast action and saying uh, that there's an emergency, they tend to be excited. Not always, but it's one thing I'm noticing about the call, Drew. And this is something that I, we discussed this the other day. I, I, the, the people that are watching or listening right now don't have the, the benefit of the conversation that we had the other day. But dispatchers are OG body-worn camera veterans. Like when body-worn cameras rolled out, all of the cops had all of these complaints about and I get it. Look, I mean, you know, the body-worn cameras are way more intrusive than what a 911 operator has. When body-worn cameras first came out, there were complaints from the cops that, like, my God, every call that we go to, we're going to be recorded. Like, there are times that we just discuss things with people that, you know, blah, 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 and uh, they're going to be used more to, to hang us or to get us in trouble than they are going to be used to uh, for good purposes. Well, since the dawn of time, these calls have been recorded. So 911 dispatchers have always had to endure that, have always. So that's why you'll hear sometimes on the news like this errant, you know, bad 911 operator who yells and screams at somebody, but, or they've got like a party going on in the background. And sometimes on the midnight shift, that's hard to contain when you're in a room full of people and trying to stay awake. And it's, 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 you know, it's the manager or supervisor's do- job to be mindful of that and keep everybody uh, quiet, but it's also their job to keep them awake. So y- you kind of understand why things, you know, are overheard or whatever. So that is a lot of what you're hearing. So we're going to start with a body cam from officer number one. Like I said, she arrives on scene just prior to about eight o'clock. We see her go inside the residence after talking briefly with family. The family escort her into an apartment, which is actually below ground on the first floor. So you'll constantly hear Mr. Seabrooks refer to people as being outside or upstairs. That's where his family will eventually be taken to. But we're going to see our first officer walk into the dwelling, past the family, and go attempt to make contact with Seabrooks. Yeah. It's Patterson Police. What's up? What's your name? Vicky. It's Ramos. Officer. Ra- Officer yes, Officer Ramos. It's me. No, of course not. So why you by yourself? I'm not by myself. I have my partner here, Cedric. Cedric. What's going on, bro? We right here. All right, bro. Why don't you tell you? I tell you, it's a mercy. What? What? What's going on? We don't know what's going on. This is a mercy. People are shot to kill me. First, he. You know, he didn't trust that there was just one of them. Then he heard that there were two of them. Then he was kind of angry that there were two of them. So it's, you could tell that he's not in his right mental state. Like, obviously there's something going on. And then, then the conversation turns real quick about 
how people are trying to kill them and and whatnot. I need an escort right now. What, where, where are you trying to go? Get the hell out of here. All right, well, ain't nothing gonna happen to you now. We're here. Where, where are you trying to go? Do you want to come out and talk to us? No. We're the cops. So he doesn't trust us the cops. You got two officers here. We're here right now. Um, <laughs> what do you want my sergeant to do? You want my sergeant to come talk to you? Yeah. All right. Let me see if I can get my sergeant down here. 911. Hello. Okay, so we have two police officers there, and what one tactic that you'll see right away is, is first of all, the problem is for some reason Mr. Seabrooks doesn't believe they're police officers. He's called for two police officers to escort him somewhere away from wherever he's at because he's receiving death threats. The one officer introduces herself, and then uh, Seabrooks doesn't believe she's a police officer because why are you here by yourself? He says. Seabrooks does this a couple of times where he claims to be an expert of police tactics or procedure. And I'm not sure if it all gets put into this presentation, but at some point he'll he'll ask other police officers why they're doing what they're doing. You can see that he immediately says, I want to talk to your sergeant or your supervisor. And the police officers don't argue the point with them. They don't say, like, why can't you just deal with me? Or, you know, she says, what would you like my sergeant to do? I mean, that's really just another police officer. But Seabrooks continues to dial 911. I'm calling because I have a mill street. The police are there. Well, I, I don't believe them. Cause they, they you asked for them to come. I'm, Those I'm, are the police. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about killing myself now. So send more. Send the big. 911, where's your emergency? What? Okay, so, <laughs> that, that, so that short call? Uh, it was very short. So you'll see that uh, he says, I don't believe that's the police. The dispatcher verifies that they're there. Uh, for most people, like when you when you independently call the police yourself, you know you're reaching the police station. The person who answers verified that there's two police officers there, and that wasn't enough for him. And he suddenly changes the situation drastically by saying, "Well, I'm thinking about killing myself." And I don't know if you guys saw that coming, but it seemed like a drastic turn to me. And I, you don't want to downplay those things because of the severity and the seriousness of it. But a lot of times, 911 dispatchers will be on the phone with someone, and all of a sudden, a piece of information like that suddenly gets uttered or said because the person saying it knows that it will increase police response. They'll say, oh, he's got a gun in his hand. He's got a knife in his hand, or I want to kill myself. These things, they know, escalate calls. In fact, I've taken some before where people will tell me that someone has a knife in hand, and then when I tell them the police are right outside, they'll say, oh, the they, they put the knife down, and they're they're totally calm, but they know that the 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 knife will make the police respond with lights and sirens. Drew, your thoughts? Weapons in general. But, you know, the, the thing is, when somebody says on the phone or in person, when somebody says, okay, well, now I'm thinking of killing myself. Yeah, sometimes it's a tactic to get more attention or sometimes it's a, get, a tactic to get uh, more police presence or, or whatever the reason. Uh, but there's there's no reason to disbelieve them. If somebody tells you they're going to kill uh, kill themselves, you just you kind of have to. Yeah, you uh, you would you be until... you would be wrong to disregard that. And one more thing, as we continue, that we're about to show or play nine one one call number three for you. Everything that that happens in the course of this, I just want to the reason part of the reason why we're playing all of these is to remind you that whatever's going on with Mr. Seabrooks today, whether he's having a mental health crisis or he's having uh, problems with drugs or anything else that might be going on with him, just want to remind you that the police were invited to the situation that they were not here until Mr. Seabrooks himself called them. And it doesn't mean that the police have license to do what they want after that, 
but he did play, place multiple 911 calls asking for police officers to arrive and now more police officers. And their sergeants. And their sergeants. I did a Bay Street In Mill Street? Yeah, uh, apartment uh, sir, we have multiple police officers at Mill Street. Are you not speaking to any of the officers that are there? Yeah, but I want to speak to the sergeant. Okay, a, a sergeant is on the way, so you speak to the sergeant, sir. No one right. is trying to hurt you. You have multiple police officers that are that are there already. All right, hold on. You know, I just want to point out that, I mean, everybody I've heard so far has shown, you know, a great degree of empathy. It's easy to get frustrated when people are calling 911 over and over and over for the same thing. You know, there have been times where we've been on a traffic stop with somebody and they've, they've called 911 over and over, you know, because they disagree with what's going on in the car behind them, you know, which is us, you know, the police. So I don't know why they're calling 911. It's not to complain, but. Uh, it's very easy to get frustrated when this is happening. They're they're taking an empathetic tone in the whole thing, and they're telling telling him, "Hey, look, everybody's there. The sergeant's on the way. Just you know, just talk to the people that are, that are there. You know, it should be a reassurance. Like, trust us. Like, you want the cops there. Those are the cops. You keep calling back asking for more cops, but we're telling you the ones that we sent you are are good. They're they're already there." Well, one thing you're hearing is frustration, but it's also confusion because at one point she says you don't see any police officers. You have to remember there's a disconnect in geography and placement and time for a 911 dispatcher. Sometimes we can send people to places and sometimes they go to the wrong place. Sometimes addresses are bad. Sometimes people get lost, misdirected. Sometimes things are just confusing. So if someone calls 911 and you send them police and the police go 1097 or on scene and they're there for some amount of time, and you're and you're taking calls from the person, the reporting party, over and over again. You know that it seems like contact has not been made between your reporting party and police. Now, 911 dispatchers will typically feel like an incident is more or less stabilized once a police officer or another first responder has made contact with the reporting party. It's very unusual to continue to take calls from a reporting party once you know a police officers on scene, and it's making the 911 dispatcher believe that there's some sort of disconnect in the physical arrival of those police officers, and perhaps they're somewhere else. The I think the body worn camera will kind of solve some of that mystery as well. I mean, you know, spoiler alert: the the, the guy that keeps calling nine one one is behind a closed door, and and they're trying to negotiate with him in in a locked room, a closed door. So, just remember, this, this is what we keep saying, you know, every week, and I think it's important to point out: the 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 nine one one emergency call taker does not know what's going on at that scene. Nobody from Nobody is live streaming what, what the officers are seeing. No cops are calling up there saying, hey, we got them hold up in the hotel, in the, in the bathroom. So she's, she's, the disconnect comes sometimes from natural things like this. Like you do not see police officers there. The answer to that question is no, because I got the door shut, but he's not going to offer that. This is officer number one's body cam. The sergeant arrives and attempts to convince the suspect that she is a sergeant with the Patterson PD, and the suspect refuses to come out. Hey, Sergeant Sanchez, my name is Lillian, okay? If you want to adjoin the door a little bit, with all due respect, I'll step back and you can take a look at me. You want to do it that way? Sarge, possible weapon. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
Okay, important point. So whoever is wearing this body camera, you can see it's a very narrow hallway. They can see into the kitchen off to their right. They can see down the hallway off to their left where there is an officer in, in between the officer and the door where the suspect is, is a sergeant who's very calmly and like in a big sister or motherly fashion trying to coax this guy out of there. And the officer just casually says, Sarge, weapon, meaning, hey, this guy's armed. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And she keeps going, meaning I got it. I, I, I heard you. Or I, I like I know, I understand. And it, it, just for those listening, she's standing directly in front of the door that he is kind of hiding behind. So that is something to remember as, as you watch the rest of this, thinking about the people in that narrow corridor, there are two bedrooms behind them and the bathrooms in front of them, that it's close quarters combat if combat has to happen in this hallway. And you'll see many people going down in front of that door and finding out how the situation ends. I want you to remember all the people who eventually stand in front of that door because in some sense, they're all in danger. I want to say I'm very impressed by this sergeant who shows up, takes command of the situation and the way that she talks to him. At first, I thought she had some negotiations background, and perhaps she does, but she's just a very good sergeant. Uh, multiple times, she calls him honey and sweetie and things like this. She's trying to build a bond with the guy to understand that uh, she's a police officer. There, She's there to help. What Seabrooks asks for is some rather bizarre things, identification. She wants a badge or a patch slid under the door. And, of course, the sergeant's not able to do that. Drew, go ahead. Just to, to paint another picture, the, the apartment is not that big. And so the, the corridor we're looking at, if John and I were standing in the doorway, or I'm sorry, if John and I were standing in the, the corridor, we wouldn't fit shoulder to shoulder, especially with that glorious beard he has. Hey, you, babe. Say it again. Hey, hey, hey. No, I'm a cop, honey. I've been doing this for 20 years. Born and raised in Patterson. I still live here. But I'm not here, listen, I'm not here to assume or to judge you, okay? You don't know me, I don't know you. I'm trying to have you understand that we're here for, for your well-being, to make sure that you're okay. That's it. Okay? Your family and your loved ones are out here, and they're worried about you. They're concerned. You said you wanted a sergeant, you got one. It's, it's always a good kind of tactic, and John, you could speak to this more, to remind them that they have family here, to remind them that we're here to help them and not hurt them and just, you know, present that calm demeanor, uh, but, but especially to kind of involve the family like you have something more to live for. What they typically will call that for a hostage negotiation standpoint is hooks and triggers. Sometimes it's hard to know if talking about family is going to be a hook or a trigger because in a suicidal situation, and perhaps we need to think of this one as, as one because he did make that threat, we don't know if family troubles are the reason for someone's uh, suicidal ideation or if they're the thing that would give them hope in that situation. It's presumed throughout the rest of the call that uh, family is important to Mr. Seabrook. Certainly his mother and other family members are there acting in caring ways. And Seabrooks himself has other family members that are not present who are very important to him. Go ahead, Drew. Uh, hooks and triggers, by the way, sounds like a house of ill repute. Number one, where's your emergency? So this is 911 call number four. He continues to call 911, even with the sergeant on the other side of the door trying to convince him. Sir, Mill Street, you, you're... Well, I'll be a standoff in this motherfucker because it's crazy around here. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Sir, but what do you want me to do on a phone line when officers are actually there? 
speak to them, please. They, officers here. I, I said I want the officer. I need a sergeant. Okay, and the sergeant is there, sir. How are you? How are you not seeing anybody? I have one, two, three, four, four officers that are out there with even. Because I'm not coming out. Yeah, I'm gonna be on the news. So fuck. Sir, hold on one second, okay? Hold on, okay? Give me one second. I'm gonna talk to the officers for you. Hold on. Do not hang up. Give me a second, okay? So he he's he's saying things like I'm gonna be on the news and and you know, it, it's it's going downhill. The negotiations, whatever they're trying, is not working. It's not like they need to escalate from a force standpoint, but they need to kind of whatever tricks up their sleeve they have. They need to kind of start throwing them down. I just want to remind the listeners that the news reported that he had been barricaded in his apartment for hours and only moments after the police arrived and uh, gained entry to the apartment did they shoot Mr. Naji Seabrooks. And it was implied that very little was done to talk to him or figure out what was going on with him. And we can even see so far that two police officers arrived. Both of them tried to talk to him. Both officers tried to switch off to see if he could build a rapport with either one. The sergeant arrived. So far, no rapport. He's still continuing to call 911 because he's still not getting what he wants. And a tip of the hat to my partner, Jonathan, who who whittled down probably about four hours worth of footage and 911 calls into this presentation that you're seeing now. I mean, we're doing this for brevity's sake and for the relevance because these negotiations sometimes take forever and ever and ever. And it, it requires a lot of patience, but obviously we don't have the time to just sit there and watch the whole. This, by the way, is going to be officer number one's body cam again. The suspect still doesn't believe the police. There's an ambulance that arrives on scene. Often they're in a safer place. Like you'll see, I think they, the rescue crew is kind of standing in the kitchen or hanging in the kitchen. Sometimes we will use that rescue crew, and I don't know how it is in New Jersey. It may be that they're dual certified as law enforcement and rescue, but uh, sometimes we'll use them to do the talking. I mean, if they can, if they know that there's a medical issue going on or a mental health issue where they need to get them to the hospital, and they can convince them that they're not in trouble, that you know they have no arrest powers, they're just there to help them. Sometimes that's that works in your favor. Hi. Go ahead. Najee, my name's Firefighter Broadfield. I'm with the Patterson Fire Department. I'm the EMT here. I'm here to help. Want to go to the hospital to go get help? Huh? I'm here to help, to take you to the hospital to go get help to go talk to someone. I don't want to go to the hospital. I need a water and a charger. Najee, listen. Listen, Najee, you want water, you want a charger, you got to give us something back. Okay, it's a give and take, Najee. You can't just keep asking for stuff. You said you wanted to kill yourself, we're here to help you. Okay, how do you want to go about hurting yourself? Are you under taking medication? What are we doing? You got a gun and two knives. So we have quite a few critical things going on there. He's he's started making demands. You know, he said that he wanted a bottle of water and he wants other things. This is uh, classic uh, barricaded subject, almost hostage type situations. You have to think of it as a hostage situation and that he's threatened to harm himself. He's essentially taken himself hostage. And that's why we would call this a hostage negotiation, a barricaded subject. It's a crisis event that a negotiator would respond to. But uh, the sergeant's absolutely correct. She says, you know, this is a give and take situation. You can't just keep making demands of us. Now, why would we give in to certain demands? To build patterns of cooperative behavior so that we show that we're committed to a solution that we're going to be reasonable, that we're not going to go in there and just 
kick some ass and use force to get our way. Certainly giving someone a bottle of water out of their own refrigerator in their apartment is something we can do. There's also certain tactical advantages to that. If we, he opens the door and from a safe distance, we can see inside. Perhaps we can verify the weapons. We can see if he's injured. We can see if he's in there alone and various other things like that. But she's right to say that there's got to be some give and take. You can't just endlessly give in to those demands and not expect anything back. So she's right to open that dialogue and explain that right away. Drew? Well, I see a couple of great comments in here. First of all, somebody is, is saying, he is he choosing not to believe this or is this a stall tactic or something to that, that effect? And he's obviously delusional. He's not believing that the police are who they are. And is it a stall tactic? Who knows? I mean, he's in there with knives and he says a gun. If he wanted to kill himself, he could have easily done that by now. But they're just, they're doing everything they can. They're throwing the, the you know, every, every card in the deck at him to try, to, to try to coax him out to get him to some help. And, you know, it becomes a frustrating process. There's a, there was another great question here. He said he had a gun, so keep the door closed and the knives aren't a threat, but the gun doesn't care about doors, which is a great point. But if he can't see you, you know, you, you've got a little bit of an advantage at least. I, I definitely see your point, though, that that, that, that bullet will penetrate a, a door very easily. And you don't know what you're shooting into when you, you know, if you're going to try to return fire. We've seen officers who were unsuccessful with that. So this is kind of gut-wrenching. This is another body cam uh, angle, and the police ask the suspect's mother to ask him to come out of the room. He doesn't believe anybody that's there. So they finally say, you know, the mother was up, what we'll call upstairs. The whole family was upstairs. Uh, obviously, they know he's in some kind of mental health crisis or maybe a drug situation. We don't know. And so the mother comes down and she begs and pleads with her baby to come out. 20 mil. 20 mil, Sarge. That G! Why'd you do this to me? Please open the door! That I'm not doing that to you, please! This is how your mother! Yeah. I did! Come on, Nike, please! You can make me upset! What money, Nike? What are you talking about? I can't believe you're doing this. The, just like to point out, tactically speaking, they are putting her right in between that door. The, the only thing, you know, the, I guess they have great confidence that he's not going to hurt his own mother. But she is begging and pleading outside that door. And even he, he's saying things to her that even she doesn't understand, such as, you know, he's making statements about money or where's the money or somebody took the money. And she, she's like, what money? What are you talking about? Like, nobody knows what you're talking about. So, I listened I listened to her for three minutes. I wanted to leave the room that I was in. She She's absolutely gut-wrenched over what is going on with him. She's extremely worried about him. As we find out later, this is a very dangerous situation. And this is something that has kind of been a school of thought in hostage negotiations, crisis negotiations for years, is what is the safe way? What is the best way to use third-party intermediaries? And should you? You know, what, suppose they had put the mother down in front of her and, and the mother had come at him at a place of attack and guilt, say, this is all your fault. We're all embarrassed by you. Look at what's going on here. You have the police in our home. And suppose that had agitated. You never know how people are going to respond to family. And a lot of times with third party intermediaries, what we will try to do is get a recorded message. 
I've had to do that before with a barricaded subject who had a firearm uh, up to his forehead where I had to get a message in the comm center from his wife telling him that the situation was going to be okay and that he should comply with officers. And that was a bit of a technological feat to get her to say that on a recorded line in the comm center and get that to an officer's cell phone where he could then play it for him. But I was able to do that and happy that we were able to solve that situation. So the use of third-party intermediaries, people have different thoughts about it, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, I, for, for many years, I always thought it was a bad idea because suppose this, suppose she goes down there and she does all of these things. Naji, come out of here, please. I'm your mother. And he says, I love you, mama. Goodbye. True. Yeah. I mean, she's It's that's the worst case scenario. Well, it's not even the worst case scenario for the officers because, you know, he could come out that door and charge at her. And, and now you've got a whole different situation on your hands for her, though, emotionally, uh, you know, mentally or, or I don't know that you ever get closure. Uh, when you're begging and pleading with somebody who's in this mental health crisis that you know and that you know isn't in your right mind. And, she, and you know, she's upset and, you know, she's probably at a 10 on a scale of 10 because she also knows what's going on here. He's not listening to reason. He's not listening to his mama. And he has knives in there and there are guys on, guys and girls on the other side of the door with a bunch of guns. And she probably understands the gravity and, and the potential outcome here. So the sergeant decides to disengage contact with the suspect. What they decide to do from there, and uh, this is often a tactic we use, is to wait for the uh, crisis negotiator, just to just kind of stabilize the scene, uh, keep them talking the best you can, but wait for negotiators to respond and probably the emergency response team, which is sometimes known as the SWAT team, depending on where you are. Uh, but you're going to have to hold your hold what you got, hold your positions until you're relieved at that point. But you can it's it's good to try to at least keep the communication going. So at least, you know, you know, that there's some stability in there and that they're not bleeding out on the floor or, or, or something to that effect. And just, you know, every once in a while, sh shout out a challenge question or see if they'll see if they've come down from their psychosis or whatever. John? They're going to try another tactic here as more personnel arrive on scene. Something like I said, alluded to earlier with the first two police officers that are, initiate contact is if you can't build a rapport with one person, you you put your ego aside and say, well, this isn't this isn't working for me. I don't have the tools or the ability to connect with this person. Let's get somebody else in here. And you're about to see yet another sergeant come and approach the door and talk to him. I can also tell you from a st the standpoint of somebody who... <sighs> I'm glad you mentioned that about the ego because, you know, I, I would pride myself on the interviews I did. I would try to connect with people on the human level. I, I've, you know, I've made no secret about my own mental health issues and, or, or, you know, my battles with suicide. So sometimes it made me better prepared to have these conversations with people. The fact that I'm still, you know, roaming the earth is, is, uh, is a, you know, could be used as a sign to them that, you know, there, there could be brighter days ahead. And, you know, I, I was pretty successful at talking to people. I did a good job at talking to people. And for some reason, I just saw the humanity in a lot of people and, and they were able to, to break through the uniform and see the humanity in me. And, you know, I, I've, I've been through quite a few of these where I'm able to successfully talk to somebody. I've also been through a few where 
it's just not going anywhere. And and it's it is so emotionally draining and frustrating when you're trying to reason with somebody who is unreasonable because of a, a psychosis or because of drugs or and and you know just like the mom I alluded to a minute ago just like the mom you just you kind of like man I, <laughs> I I don't I don't know where her, his or her head is right now but I know that this is this is bad uh, it's not it's not going to end well for somebody it's funny you mentioned breaking through the uniform because observer bias, uniforms, badges, and titles, they all certainly do have an effect on a suspect or any person in crisis. Normally, when you will make first contact with the subject, usually by phone, voice, or whatever it is you're doing, you'll introduce yourself without your title. And certainly with some official dumb, you'll say your department. So I would say, you know, I'm John and I'm I'm with the such and such department. I'm, I'm here to help. Can you tell me what's going on? Can you tell me how we got here? Is anybody hurt? You know, you would typically start with questions like that, throwing out, I'm, I'm officer so-and-so. It's almost like you're, you're doing sort of a power wedge of your authority over them or trying to claim some power in this situation. Make no mistake, the person in charge of this situation right now when it comes to the safety of Mr. Seabrooks is Mr. Seabrooks himself. Also, the situation I must point out is incredibly similar to what correctional officers face every day. Uh, correctional officers have to deal with inmates who will barricade themselves inside their cells. They'll take mattresses and other things cover up cameras, cover up cell fronts, and we have to be responsible for their safety and negotiate with them sometimes at cell front just like this. Inmates can get a hold of weapons, so simply opening the door is not always an option. Depending on their custody status, opening a door is not only an option. Not having a full team there to respond to inmate violence, especially if there's two inside the cell, is often a problem. So the idea of negotiating it face-to-face you know, through a door is something that correctional officers have to do every day. Great comment here. If I were a mom, I'm wondering if, if they had not allowed her to try, how much she would be haunted by it. I can tell you that this is a pretty rare circumstance here. John just alluded to the fact that, you know, sometimes they'll get a recording of somebody. It's 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 kind of rare that we bring a family member in that close. So, uh, yeah, I, I do understand that position. I understand where you're coming from. It's, it's definitely not frequently done, though, it's, because it's, of the danger involved. It's critical to mention, though, because some of the first reports that I read about this was, you know, that Mr. Seabrooks works for this nonviolence coalition and that certain of his colleagues he had texted and they were outside and they were ready to come up and defuse the situation. He's saying, you know, I want to talk to my people. I want to talk to my friends. And their complaint was is that the police did not allow them to respond. So the situation is being shaped as though mental health professionals were ready, were there and ready to respond and the police denied them access. When we find out the situation is violent and dangerous later, you have to see that the police are granting extra leverage for people, for anyone that can reach him, particularly his mother and other people, as you'll see in this video. So the claim that only police officers were allowing influential people to come and talk to Seabrooks was absolutely not true. True. This is the, the this is a part of the reimagining police or defunding police where uh, they want social workers or they want psych, uh, mental health counselors or whatever to travel with police officers. But I, I can tell you just, you know, I, I think there's even uh, something they've run into in California right now. If there's somebody on the other side of the door with a knife or a gun, the, the mental health counselor is not, <laughs> they're generally not the one that's in between. You know what I mean? They're not the, they're not the one that's proximal to the, the suspect. Or, or, or the person having the crisis, they're not necessarily suspects. But so you can you can throw all the mental health resources in the world at right now, or you can, but 
he's still at the end of the day a human being who has strength and knives and he says he has a gun and you can't just stick a social worker or you can't just stick a psycho a, a, a mental health professional in it, just like the mom you, you kind of can't just shove them right to the front of the line but you have to hold a protective barrier for them the suspect doesn't trust the patterson pd the officers try to get the subject to call his grandfather hey, hey, but his grandfather happens to be a retired police officer hi my name is sergeant serrano patterson police all right i just want to let you know you're not in trouble not whatsoever okay i have a whole bunch of people here just trying to get you some help or for you to talk to someone i heard you calling someone over we will not be able to let that person in unless you come out and go to the ambulance if you want that person to go with you to the hospital we could see if we could arrange that or not for you right now the whole situation is procedures is if if from this situation, you're not wanting to come out, you're inside with a couple of knives, you stated some things, I guess, that made some people feel uncomfortable as you wanted to hurt yourself. Because of that, we you have to go to the hospital. At this point, you know, we just all here trying to help you. So if you could tell me what's the best way to help you, that will actually, you know, that help us figuring out a way for you to actually come out and get some help from someone. Did, if you took something, I'm not sure if that's true or not. If you took something, that's okay too. You're not in trouble because if you took something, okay? At this point, we don't care of whatever you used. If it was a, if it's making you feel certain type of ways, that's perfectly fine. I don't care if you even have it on you right now. Right now, all we trying to do is get you to the hospital and get some help. And as long as you just come out and nothing occurs after, you're good. You're not under arrest or nothing like that. We'll just get you to the hospital just to talk to someone over there. And your mentor could possibly go there as well with you. Now, I, I get it. It's frustrating. You don't want anybody here in your house. You probably just wanted to chill out and talk to your mentor or go for a walk or something like that. Unfortunately, we're at this process right now. What's up? That's fine. So the emergency response team has arrived. Part of the reason the way I edited it the way I did is because you, it's very difficult to hear Mr. Seabrook says he's answering the sergeant. Most of the time, he's not verbal at all. And the sergeant has to kind of continue with the stream of thought. And he's almost guessing, you know, are you worried about if I go in there and we're going to find drugs on you? Because at this point, we don't care about that. We only care about your well-being. We care about getting you to the hospital. He's basically telling him, like, to defuse the situation and make sure that you're safe. We're just going to forego the criminal stuff of whatever could be going on in there in terms of uh, narcotics, drugs, and things like that. So here again, we have we have the police. We have we have had now four police officers, a mother, and an EMT fireman at this this doorfront saying, "Hey, why don't you come out and talk to us?" He's still refusing to do that, uh, refusing to cooperate. Still not really exactly sure what his his mental state is, uh, but we're already. By the time when that sergeant first started speaking with him, we had already had police officers on scene for 27 minutes. And now the emergency response team has arrived. Drew, go ahead. Incidentally, in some states to include here in Florida, there are laws that prevent you from charging somebody criminally when they call about an overdose. So, you know, in a situation like Najee's there, I, I'm pretty sure it's probably the same in New Jersey. I don't know factually, but. The, the the sergeant is just kind of saying, look, we don't care about the dope. And and nobody believes the cops anyway, but it's true. We don't care about the dope. We just want you to come out. 
that's it. We don't want you to cut yourself. We don't want you to cut anybody else or hurt anybody else. We just, we're just trying to help you here. So by the way, that's his beanbag. Okay. So that's, that's not lethal. That's not lethal. It's a beanbag. Okay. It's a beanbag. Hey, Najim, look. I, I, the last thing I want to do is go in there forcefully. But that, but the whole problem is we don't want you to hurt yourself. We're concerned that we're, we don't want to hurt you. We're not going to hurt you. Exactly. That's why we want you to just come out and come talk to the ambulance. Uh, exactly. We just want you to come out and just go to. We're, you're, we're not. No one said that at all. You understand me? No. What happened? This has nothing. He, he keeps saying money is that important. Money is that important. They're not doing money. There's just no reasoning with him. He, he's just like in this state. He's stuck. I'm not even sure where that comes from. To be it's heartbreaking for real. That's the truth. At this point, you just have to come out and come to the hospital with you. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So just open the door, shows you with your hands up, and that's it. We'll we'll walk you to the to the ambulance. Once you get to the ambulance safe, we'll leave you alone. Once you get to the hospital safe, I mean. And then we can arrange your mentor to go to the hospital as well. You washing your face, Najin? No, I'm not washing my face. I'm not washing my because I heard the water. I just want you to take deep breaths. Okay. So, um, as we continue on the the journey here, he starts calling neighboring police departments. He calls the police department in Fairfield, New Jersey, and Ogden, New Jersey, and he tells them that the Patterson PD is holding him captive. Patterson, New Jersey? Okay. There's a lot of people trying to hurt me right now. So I'm calling y'all so, so y'all could come here because Patterson police intercepting every call I make out. So I'm trying to find other cities to reach out to. I'm there. You're in Patterson, sir? Yes, I'm at <laughs> Mill Street. Patterson, New Jersey. And what's, going, doing what's is, going on there? They they got me trapped in a bathroom, right? And they're trying to kill me. Alert everybody. What, 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 so I'm, who is the person that you you're, that is holding you there? Patterson cops. They keep me Patterson out. police are have you in the bathroom? Yes, but you got to heavy up. My phone on three percent. They okay. they can kill right. my phone. Just, just give me one second, sir. Okay. Thank you. Did you hear what he said? They said the police are, are killing my phone. So the right. situation has transformed from the initial 911 call. Please send two police officers over to my house. I'm being threatened. So now that he he believes that the Patterson Police Department are real, but now they are they are keeping him hostage there. That sergeant who was talking to him, you'll hear him kind of fumble over his words. Well, you know, you're kind of going off the cuff when you're negotiating, and it can be very difficult because number one, you don't want to make any promises that you can't deliver on. So when he says, you know, we're going to leave you alone when you get to the ambulance, that's obviously not true. So he quickly corrects himself. We'll leave you alone when you get to the hospital. And then he says, and then your mentor can be there. And he says, I don't know what the policies are from the hospital in terms of having your mentor there. So he he kind of tries to leave a little bit of headroom in there so that he's not over committing and not under delivering on these promises. And, you know, 
at one point he hears the water running, like maybe he's washing up and getting ready to go. Like to me, that might be a sign that he's ready to leave. And so he says, are you, are you washing your face? And this just totally sets Seabrooks off. He goes, no, I'm not washing my face. And the sergeant kind of is like, I just want you to take deep breaths. He realizes that by asking that somehow he's uh, escalating the situation. So he's immediately trying to de-escalate again by going with the deep breaths. Drew. The officers attempt to convince the subject to come out by talking to him about his family. Because I know you really care about your daughter, right? John, can you explain why he used the daughter's name? It, it makes the more real rather than just saying your daughter, your daughter, your daughter. In the same way that a, a negotiator or a police officer would talk to him by calling him Naji or that the first sergeant called him Naj, you know, kind of giving him sort of a nickname. It humanizes and it makes him want, he wants Naji to think about his daughter. His daughter's out of state in California. It's really hard to tell what they're talking about other than to say that something that Naji might be upset about is that he's, he's separated physically from his daughter. He's, she's on the other side of the country. She's four years old and they want to give him something positive to focus on. Unlike a mother or someone else there, it's very hard to have hard feelings about your four-year-old daughter. There could be things surrounding that situation, perhaps hopelessness about a reunion. But again, we're going with the idea, the theme here of family, that Naji is a guy that works in a nonviolent political action committee. He's about gun control. He's here with multiple family members. He seems to have respect for his mom. It's kind of a, a good theme to go with. A lot of time negotiators will try to build a theme and try to figure out uh, what he's about you know, what kinds of things are, are likely to, to de-escalate him. And they're trying to appeal to his, his uh, sense of uh, paternal protectiveness over his daughter or giving him uh, something to make future plans about rather than thinking like his life has to end here today, locked in the bathroom with the Patterson PD, you can start making plans for the future. Well, when we get out of here, you know, we can get you to the hospital and we can start making plans to possibly, you know, maybe we can have your daughter fly out here or you can go there. And once you have them start thinking more about the future, it helps take some of the immediacy or the direness out of the situation once they're able to form those long-term plans. If somebody mentions the name of, of somebody close and personal to me, their image pops into my head. So I think that's always probably best too, to kind of throw the, the track off to the point where you, you're actually connecting with something in, in your mind. What happened with... She went to California, right? What happened with that? That's got to be hard. That sucks. How old is your daughter? Three. Oh, man, that's horrible. You want to tell me a little bit about what happened? If you won't do it for me, will you do it for... Because you know that four-year-old daughter loves you. And you know she's missing you. That's a big appeal right there. Say, you know, if you won't do it for me because you don't have respect for the police, you don't have respect for me, you don't know me in this situation, there's no reason why anything that I'm saying to you should matter. Does your daughter matter? Will you come out for her? Will you come out so that you can make plans to see her? That's a huge appeal. And I'm not sure if that's uh, one of the emergency response team guys talking to her. It certainly looks like it's uh, 
one of those guys that is able to talk. Perhaps they have an integrated team of negotiators and, and operators, but a huge appeal there and ineffective. True. Let's continue on. This is the police allow the suspect's uncle to approach the apartment so the suspect will come out and talk to him. That's uh, another time. I'm waiting for the other guy to get his phone, but in the meantime, I got ID. He's right out in the hallway. Now, I know you want to verify that it's him. What's that? That's exactly what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to have one of these guys slide the ID under the door. All right. I'm going to slide it right under right now, all right? The suspect refuses to believe that his uncle has arrived at the scene despite being given his ID card and that was the purpose of uh, trying to slide the ID card under the uh, under the door the uncle who is a former police officer is allowed to approach the suspect in the bathroom and talk we're now talking about 1 hour and 41 minutes of contact time between the police and Mr. Seabrooks inside the door again to totally lay waste to the news narrative and perhaps it was only one station reported this but the police went in there and without much thought or consideration or empathy shot Mr. Seabrooks, we can see we're only an hour and 41 minutes in. We're not giving up. We're trying new tactics. We're trying to find a way to get that door out open so that Mr. Seabrooks can come out peaceably. Najee, I got here now, okay? He's going to start talking to you. Shoot, lose audio. John, are you Guy, hearing that? you good? Yeah. Okay. Najee, you good? Huh? I need you to come on out. Everybody's upstairs, wants to see you. They all came here because we're in love with you. If you if you go upstairs, you come on out, go upstairs, they'll give you an opportunity to talk to your mom and everybody you need to. All right? How's that sound? Good? All right. Put the knives down and listen to these officers and come on out, all right? I'll walk you out. All right? I'll stay with you through the whole process. Najib, all right, put them down and come on out. Everybody's here because we care about you. So the suspect has promised to come out. This is usually a sign that the negotiation is effective, but the but Najee breaks his word in this in this instance. We'll see in a second. And they call him out on it too, as as you'll see here. That they want to know why he's going back on his word. Najee, come on, man. Two minutes is way up, man. You told me two minutes. You promised. You promised us. What do you want me to tell your mom? She's upstairs all upset. And I, I ain't got nothing I can tell her. The suspect refuses to cooperate, and the ERT has uh, fulfilled numerous uh, demands for, like, water. They have agreed to allow him to talk to his mother, his mentor, and his colleagues who are outside trying to talk to him. So they were given the opportunity to talk to him, John. Yeah, they, they're telling him, like, listen, all you have to do is just come on outside. Your, your friends and your people are out there. We'll let you talk to them before you get in the ambulance. His mentor, I believe, if I'm not conflating people, was his uncle who came in. That was uh, the last person spoke. He's also a former police officer, just like Najee's grandfather is. So interesting here that family is a theme that you're going with. Uh, you have two family members who are former police officers. Obviously, you know, at this point, the SWAT team is there and they're allowing his uncle as a former police officer to talk to him. The uncle is obviously giving him very sound advice for what we would not call a surrender to the police, but which is in effect a surrender. And again, you know, multiple people are being allowed to talk to him. He's being being given assurances of fair and kind treatment. It's the things that are concerning him that will be addressed. 
And we're now at two hours and 15 minutes of contact with the suspect. And he still has uh, given us nothing. Onward. This is body cam from officer number three now. Najee. Come on, man. Please. You gotta, you're the one that can end this, kid. Come on. We need you to come out and talk to your mom. What am I going to tell your mom? I can't. I told you that. I got your uncle right here. That's the best I could do right now. I can't bring your mom down here. I'm telling you the truth. But as soon as you come out, your mom will be the first person I bring you to talk to. So the weapon that he has, he's now going to turn on himself. This is a sign that he's has a full break with reality. Luckily, we don't see a whole lot of these acts of self-harm. And I've condensed a lot of it down. But at one point, these officers are watching him. He'll open the door and uh, he'll take the knife to his, his body right in front of them. Again, this is something correctional officers have to see quite a bit. You think that inmates don't get a hold of sharp objects. They very frequently do. And it can be very, very, very disturbing to see someone looking straight at you, daring you to stop them. They have a weapon in their hand and they're harming themselves. Drew, have you ever been in a situation like that? Sure. But I was going to ask the question of you and Micah, you know, how long would this negotiation go on if this were in the, in the wall, inside the walls of, of a prison, say? Well, would you- it's, the thing is that the situation is different inside a prison. Effectually, you have to weigh out a lot of things. You know, you can use force. The, your use of force doctrine is a lot more liberal or loose inside the prison. But what I always thought of before I would do a cell entry was, is I would consider who I was dealing with, the propensity for violence, other things. Uh, One time we had an inmate uh, who was well-known and well-documented that he could not feel pain. I'm not sure what the reason for that was, but everyone knew that no matter what happened to his body physically, he did not register pain. The decision was made when we made a cell entry on him that we would not deploy OC spray because it would not have any effect on him. However, it would affect the officers going inside. So usually my primary concern before we would do a cell entry was how long have we been negotiating and how serious is the situation? Are we able to see him at all? Is he talking to us? Are negotiations progressing? But most of all, whether or not my officers would get hurt. I did order a cell entry on one occasion in which uh, two of my officers were hurt. and It was not fun for me to have officers hurt on my watch. I did not enjoy that. So for the benefit of those who don't see the comments here, Micah said that uh, if they're self-harming, they have to react where he works. They have to react immediately despite any uh, risk involved. And just like any good leader, he says that he goes first. That was a, a test question, Micah. When I got hired, they actually showed me a video. I'm not sure if it was real or not. It was probably not. But they showed an inmate inside a cell cutting his arm with some sharp object. And they say, what will you do? And one of the options was, do you call the door open from the control room and intervene in that situation, or do you call for backup? For our situation, and I believe the correct choice is to wait for backup. I don't want that inmate to come to harm, but I'm also not going to put myself at risk or, other, or, or one other officer. If I can, I'm going to get as much help there as soon as possible. Um, unfortunately, I have seen inmates very gravely injured because we were not able to get that help to them. But, you know, if I become a casualty in that situation, if he's able to do greater harm to me than he is to himself, all of a sudden we have two people injured. And then right. the next person to respond has to deal with that. Drew. Yeah, we, we don't want to cre- uh, we don't want to create more victims is the is the thing. So anyway, we, you, you've got to balance that decision, you know, that that tipping point. But you definitely don't want to create more victims. So you might have to just go in. 
or you might have to wait for somebody before you go. In. So he's harming himself with a knife. We are for sure uh, positive that he does have a weapon inside. Nigeria, are you trying to harm yourself? I'm worried about you. He continues to self-harm. He displays more bizarre behavior, such as uh, turning on the water in the shower. Don't forget he's in the bathroom. Yeah, this, there, there would be no reason for that, obviously. Two hours and 56 minutes at this point, we've had contact between the suspects. Come on, Najee. Uh, he got three knives. He got three knives in hand. Najee, I got a pocket in here. I got a hoodie on. You dummy. Yeah, on, I got three knives. Najee, come on. He's holding on to three knives. He's bleeding from the left hand. All right, this we go. He's bleeding from the right hand. Heavy bleeding from the right hand. Yeah, Come on, Come on we want to get you some medical attention. Let's go. We don't want to see anything happen to you. So I don't know if you can make this out if you're seeing it, but definitely not if you're hearing it. Obviously, you can't see it, but the officer whose body cam that we're seeing right now is holding his handgun. He is also kind of shielded literally by some type of shield. I don't know if it's ballistic. I don't know if it's rated for, you know, uh, sharp objects, but. They're also in, in full SWAT gear with helmets, visors on and all that too. Come on. The emergency response team deploys less lethal options. As the suspect briefly opens the door, he's armed with knives and he's begun cutting his arms. We're at three hours and one minute into the negotiation here. It just gets getting, keeps getting worse. It's not a good sign once they've started uh, committing acts of violence against themselves. And they have to start intervening. As Micah said, that you can't just do nothing. They have enough officers there. They, they want to resist charging him. Well, you got him, man. He's picking it up again. Make sure you say less than lethal. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, less than lethal, less than lethal. Did you fire up? Nah, less than lethal. One round, Captain. Oh, you just fired? One round, less than lethal. The suspect assaults an officer by throwing an unknown fluid on him. You'll hear the officer describe it in a second. That is uh, a form of assault, everyone. I know that it may seem petty, but it is an assault. You also hear him talk about less <laughs> lethal. Be ready, guys. They're committed to not harming him. I don't know what it is. He's spraying something. I don't know what it is. He just sprayed me with something in the face. I don't know what it is. All right, bear in mind, he's, the, the description of a minute or two, or two ago was he's bleeding heavily from his right hand. And now this, this officer is getting sprayed in the face with an unknown object or an unknown liquid. It could be water from the shower. It could be blood. It could be a, a combination of the two. It, you know, it could be feces. It could be a, bu- a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, but the officers are, uh, just to kind of p- drive the point home, standing standing tough in the batter's box. They're just, they're just waiting it out. And this is, you know, this is the not so uh, glamorous part of the job, but they're not, they're not giving up on this guy. The suspect had demanded to talk to the mayor And that request has been granted by the mayor, believe it or not, that the suspect peaceably exits the bathroom. You'll hear it in a second. It's a usual demand that they want to talk to the ultimate person in charge. However, no one in charge can negotiate as a matter of tactics because that person's a decision maker. That's why negotiators exist. That's why the chief doesn't negotiate. Remember before you said you want to talk to the mayor, right? Yeah. Well, the lieutenant in internal affairs is telling me that he will get the mayor on the phone 
If you come out, it's good that they're still leveling with them. They're not, they're not caving to every single demand and they are, they, they are, it's kind of in a sense, a tactic to snap them back into reality to tell them, no, we're not doing that. We've come this far. Let's, let's keep going forward, but we're not, we're not going to do that. I, I just want to say, you know, this is four and a half hours of footage. I, for the simplicity of the podcast and to keep the story of this incident moving along, I had to cut out hours and hours and hours of them simply saying, Najee, Najee, talk to me. What's going on with you? And no response from him. They probably said his name 10,000 times. Again, I want to refute any media narrative that the police came in here with a lack of understanding or patience and simply gunned down someone specifically for their race. We have seen that that has been an utter non-factor in any of this. It has not come up at any point. Every single person, all of these people, firefighters, police officers, his own mother, his uncle, all of these people have approached the situation trying to resolve it. You cannot say that the racism of a police department, systemic or personal or otherwise, has any bearing in any of this. And the body cam footage and the voice audio of the officers and people that you're hearing verifies that. Great points. I mean, this is this is a, a classic example of why I say we are deteriorating in this country because nobody is necessarily safe anymore because there's police officer hesitancy. There's there is a a mass exodus exodus within law enforcement because social media and mainstream media come first and they get the story out how they want it painted and that spreads like wildfire fire through the community and to this day they're still yelling justice for naji you'll see in a minute here how how it ends but this was not what the news reported it to be this this was a hours hours long patient patient negotiation with care and compassion it just turned very violent very quick and, you know, and unfortunately, this young man lost his life in the process. It had nothing to do with him being black. It had nothing to do with any of the officers being white, Hispanic, black. It didn't matter. They were there trying to save him. They've escalated to setting a fire, which is why they cannot retreat from the residence. Everyone there is now in danger because he will start a fire in the bathroom. And not only does he start it, but he makes it worse. Guys, knife on left hand. Uh, he started a fire. He started a fire. He's burning his shirt. He's burning his shirt. Still got a knife on his hand. He's starting a fire. I'm I'm kind of glad that you edited that out, but th this is it's the same thing as you know that I tried to describe an active shooter situation. Like there is just so much environmental pollution happening while you're trying to concentrate, and you're trying to do your best to get a safe full, a safe resolution for everybody there. And you got fire alarms going off. You got Najee yelling. You have your the, phone going off. You have the light in the hallway doesn't work. We've had a police officer shining a flashlight brightly on the ceiling in order to illuminate the corridor right. now for hours because there's no light bulb in the hallway. They tried right. the switch. You saw it earlier in the video. It's just one of a ten thousand things going on in an environment that's distracting and frankly agitating. When you're standing there, first of all, inside this apartment, this is in March apartments heated but they're wearing this full tactical gear with their helmets on and their visors down and they're standing there hour after hour i mean even in comfortable clothes could you stand there outside a bathroom door waiting for someone to come out comfortably 
for four hours. Now, I don't want to compare that to the loss of the Seabrooks family or say that police officers aren't, aren't ready, willing, and able to stand there for eight hours or 16 hours in order to make them come out. But this is a very difficult situation for you to not get frustrated and for not, to not let your emotions show as you stand there hour after hour after hour making a simple request that someone put down their weapons and come out and talk. And all of these things going on, the heat in the room, the noises, it's all overstimulating and it's frustrating. And I, that's something that probably nothing is being said about the police officers there, that despite these frustrations, these agitations, you cannot hear it in their voice. They are constantly committed to Mr. Seabrooks' safety. All he needs to do is cooperate. He can come out of there. True. I, I think that would lend to also, if this were the quote execution, you know, I don't think that anybody has said that. Maybe they have, but that's that's the go-to phrase usually in situations like this, that somehow he was executed. But does anybody in that, are you hearing any tones of voice that would indicate that they were amped up and ready to kill somebody? If anything, they were just, you know, 120 over 80, but remaining completely vigilant and and trying to negotiate a peaceful surrender. I mean, that's that's the that's the goal 100% of the time. It it just doesn't turn out that way 100% of the time. The suspect is now standing nude, holding knives, cutting himself and continuing to threaten to kill police officers. Let me tell you from experience, you know, I kill me in the comments, whatever you want to do. My first major fight as a deputy sheriff was with, you know, I had, I was with my field training officer. We had to fight a guy in the middle of a street who was completely naked and it was pouring down rain. I don't care how strong somebody is or how weak they are or whatever, but when they are naked and when they are completely wet, as you know, like the shower in the bathroom here, it is near impossible to to get them under control. And just so now let's throw three knives on top of that and a threat of a gun. I'm obviously he can't hide the gun, but it, it it shouldn't be underestimated. The fact that he's not wearing any clothing means you can't grab onto anything. I mean, you can, but it's not going to be effective. It also changes the way that you talk to the guy. I mean, at that point, he's totally dissociated from his own sense of shame or dignity. You know that you're not talking to someone who's in the same place that you are mentally. Was this a mental health crisis? Circling back to the beginning of the call, after the two officers made initial contact, other people in the family say, you know, this is totally atypical for him, which I believe. Now, they also said that, you know, he had been working with a lot of youth in the uh, neighborhood, that he had known a lot of people who had lost their lives to violence. I have no doubt that that is something that could weigh heavily on Mr. Seabrooks. However, I don't know if it is strictly that that's informing his uh, decision-making process right now, if it's the drugs or it's both. But the situation is being painted as though Mr. Seabrooks is having strictly and only a mental health crisis, not complicated by drugs or anything else of his own choosing. And the police are ignoring, you know, with a lack of empathy or a deficit of empathy for someone in a mental health crisis. They're doing everything they can for this man. And he's clearly showing that he's operating on another level, which I'm not sure that a psychiatrist or other mental health professional would necessarily be ready to deal with in that sort of situation. But regardless of whether or not they're ready to step in there or not, the situation tactically is now totally untenable for a civilian to be in there. Uh, they can't put him in front of the door or even on the phone. I know uh, at one point Seabrook said that uh, Patterson PD was intercepting all of his uh, phone calls. One tactic that we will use as negotiators is that we will trap a phone or hotline a phone 
so that they cannot call other people. We can call your cell phone provider, and if we can uh, demonstrate that we have exigent circumstances to do so, we can not only interrupt a phone call that you are already talking with someone else in order to speak with you, we can also make it so that all of your texts and phone calls go only to the negotiator. Again, this is to prevent for anyone else from influencing you or giving you tactical information or updating you, someone from outside, someone watching the news. We also don't want you to get on the phone with someone that you need to say goodbye with. We want you to focus on the negotiator so that we can continue to build that influencing rapport to change your behavior and get you to come outside and talk with us. Drew. Stop, man. Let us get you the help you need, man. Put the knives on the floor, Nash. Nobody's going to shoot you, man. Nobody's going to shoot you. All right? Nobody's going to shoot you. Nash, let's put the knives on the floor, dude. Let us get you the help you need. Stop cutting yourself. Just stop. Stop. Let us help you. Stop. Nah, we don't want you to die, man. I need you to put the knife on the ground so we can help you. No, nobody's going to shoot you. Just stop, Nash. Just stop. Nah, nobody's going to... No, you're not going to do that. No, you don't want to do that. All right? It's not worth it. All right? You got a long life ahead of you. You don't want to end it like this. You keep doing that to your arm. We can't help you. Drop the knives. Come Just on. drop the knives, Naj. Look, man, you got to be feeling really crappy right now. Let's get you help. All right? Just stop, man. Just stop. Just stop. Naj. He's closing the door, but knife to the neck. Nice. Come on. You want to talk to somebody? Yeah. Family or anything like that? Mom. Your mom? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Naj, we can bring you to your mom if you know where she is. Sitting on. Sitting. Mm -hmm. Naj, come on, man. Let's take you to your mom. All right? Let her talk to you. All right? I'm sure she don't want to see you like this. Drop it. Drop it. So that's how quick it happens. You know, uh, with the graphic up here that says four hours and 34 minutes negotiating, you can see the conversation went from stop cutting yourself, come out, come on, Naj, to boom, boom, boom. Because he exited the bathroom with the knives and lunged towards the officers. No other reason than that. It, it's, it went from a very peaceful and almost begging and pleading begging intensive negotiation to i i feel threatened and you, you should not have done this there are other angles perhaps i should have put them in there but to be honest with you i was this was a lot to put together and i was getting tired but there's two there's two bedrooms opposite of the bathroom we're watching the officer in the hallway so he charges past the officer that shoots going after the officer that's in the bedroom so he was lunging at, at a dead sprint towards the officer with knives in his hands, that's a that's a deadly situation. 
for those people who scoff and say, well, he had knives and he was in a gunfight, get stabbed. I'm sorry, that sounds very, very cruel or mean, but that's a lethal situation. You cannot take being stabbed. It's, this is not the movies where you get stabbed and it hurts, and then later you're not even limping. Uh, being stabbed is a lethal situation. The use of force was necessary. And you can hear, I, I didn't cut any of that, that last part. They are sitting there saying, please stop. Will you talk to your mom? Please stop. Please don't do this. You only have one life to live. What else would you have these police officers do? Mental health professionals, if you're out there, call in and, and give us the clue. What was it they were supposed to say after four hours and 34 minutes that would have ended the situation? I feel terrible. I wish he was, I wish he was alive because this does terrible things for the narrative of police. It does terrible things to his family. And it cuts short the life of a 31-year-old man with a daughter and a mother and, and all this. It didn't have to come to this at all. And even if it was, it was only strictly a mental health crisis, if the police only aggravated things, if the police had never been called. But all I can say is, is Mr. Seabrooks made that call. This started with him and, and, and he was in command the entire time. He was in command until the police were forced to take command from him because the decisions he was making with that command were to, to charge at a police officer with knives. And it's a very tragic situation. Now what's happening is that you have the Black Lives Matter and other movements going out there and they're demanding justice and saying that the police officers go out there and one person I heard in a report today is saying that the police go out there and they're putting their knees on the neck of the black man. Look at this situation. He was, as I said, again, he was in charge this entire time. You have protesters who are going out there now. One of these officers who was involved in this incident and actually owns a restaurant in the area and mobs have been seen outside and kicking security gates. Now, I'm not sure the ex extent of the damage or whatever else, but they're demanding justice against the police brutality uh, of this situation. Where was the brutality? There was a flash of violence at the, at the end, again, initiated by Mr. Seabrooks. And what angers me and what has me set so on edge, because perhaps you can tell, is that I watch these news reports and they have to have gone through this footage to pick out the pieces where they show, you know, Mr. Seabrooks reacting to the less lethal rounds coming through the doors. But they must have willfully ignored all of this. They must have seen everything that I've seen and said, I'm going to pull out I'm going to throw out 99.9% .9 of this so that I can, I can use this to feed my narrative that Mr. Seabrooks was someone who was misunderstood and essentially assassinated by police. And it frustrates me greatly because I don't have a degree in journalism. All I have is the integrity to watch four and a half hours of video and edit as best I can into a presentation to show here in an audio podcast what I saw. And what the news is telling you is completely inaccurate. And all I will say is, is that copy and paste this situation towards everything else. If you don't know what's going on, it's because the news is misleading you and you can do your own research like I did. And I compel you to do that because you'll find something different than what the news is telling you. Drew, I got to get off my soapbox. You go ahead. <laughs> well, you did an amazing job uh, at, at watching all of this stuff and following the story. The, 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 the epilogue to the story, though, is, is it's still developing. The Department of, I'm sorry, the New Jersey um, the, the Attorney New, General's Office. <laughs> thank you. The New Jersey Attorney General himself came in and did a press conference. It's about 25 minutes. You can watch it on YouTube if you like, where he uh, essentially said, I have now taken control of the Patterson Police Department. Citing this as an example of some kind of misuse of authority or I, I, I don't. Seizing control of the police department is a misuse of authority because I would like to know 
what instructions the attorney general would give to these guys. You know, they had the attorney general's phone number the entire time. Perhaps they should have called him and he could have, you know, let them know what to do. They had, were certainly in contact with the mayor. The mayor remark, remarks on this as saying it is a very sad situation. I think the mayor understands a lot more about what was going on than the, the attorney general was. The mayor was willing to talk to the guy if he only came out. Mayors are very busy doing whatever it is that they do, and the mayor was willing to talk to him. So it frustrates me that you have a big state agency saying we're going to seize this department because of this incident, when the, obviously the attorney general's office is who I got this video from. They saw everything I saw. And what would you have the police do differently? At one point, Andrea said in the comments, you know, why don't they retreat out of there? That was something I thought of. Like, what if we just completely did it a different way? What if we just said, you know what, he's in a mental health crisis. He locked in the bathroom. And Drew, you've talked about this before. What is the police responsibility towards suicidal subject? Suppose we evacuated the family and got the hell out of there. Well, again, he started a fire. Okay, they're in an apartment complex at the bottom floor. He starts a fire with his t-shirt. He's obviously got something else in there that he's using to start a fire. Not sure what that was, but he adds plastic to it at one point. Okay, I'm not sure how they put the fire out, but he started a fire in there. So again, he's putting everyone in that apartment in danger. They now have an affirmative uh, responsibility to stay there and to take him into custody, not only because of the suicidal talk, but because he's essentially committing arson, for lack of a better word. And again, like he's going through something. I understand that. So I'm not, I'm not angry with him, but I'm frustrated that again, the news is trying to paint this as though the police were had an itchy trigger finger and went in there frustrated or whatever else and took his life and they didn't need to. Cause that's not what happened. Again, it's Drew a, off the soapbox. Go ahead. Well, first of all, thank you, David J who uh, just left a hundred dollar super chat. He's always, he's, he's keeping me in the ice cream this month. I gotta be honest. Uh, but Anytime you lose control, anytime the people lose control of, of their police department, uh, it, you know, when there's over governance, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I, I don't know exactly if this is about, well, the community doesn't trust them anyway. This is out of protection for the police for us to take control here, but they're going to install their own chief. They, they, they've taken that away from, you know, so the people elect a mayor and the mayor wants to elect a chief or select a chief. You've taken that power away from the citizens that are there. When they had a recent re-election, when the new mayor was came in, they selected a police chief who was the first Muslim police chief. And that's all they kept touting him as the first Muslim police chief. And yeah, great. That's, that's, that is a milestone, but that's all you can say about it because the crime rate went through the roof. Just because somebody is Muslim or just because somebody is black or just be, even just because they're white, like nobody's really getting selected just because they're white, although the mainstream media would have you believe otherwise. But just because you're the first gay black uh, spokesperson in the White House doesn't mean you're intelligent enough to hold the position. We, we, we have to talk about qualifications when it comes to the safety of the people involved. and. This is once you've taken it away from the people who are affected the most, you know, the stakeholders, I, I think this is a completely slippery slope. I, I think this is a little bit of an overreach. But again, I don't there are a lot of things that I don't know about Patterson. I just think that using this as the precipitating event and somehow racializing this, somehow adding a racial aspect to this. This is a horrible thing. This is this is caving to this is not having a conversation. Everybody always wants to have, quote, a conversation when something like this happens. And what the conversation normally is, 
is you're going to browbeat me and tell me how horrible I am. And then I'm just going to walk away frustrated. There are no conversations because if there were conversations, the, our chats would be loaded right now with people saying, you know, I didn't think of that. Or you guys are just a bunch of racists. Well, people, it's not like that. People make up their minds and they buy into the narrative. And I didn't come here tonight with uh, the intention that I could change anyone's mind about how they feel about the police because people have their just their decision made up. But I want anyone who's angry with the police or angry with how their local government is handled or angry, angry with anyone in authority or just angry that this man died. I want you to, to look at the news and question what you're hearing. I don't care if it's CNN. I don't care if it's Fox. I don't care where you're at on the dial. The things that people tell you, it's fundamentally inaccurate. It's lazy journalism. It's yellow journalism. It's bad journalism. It's journalism to drive an agenda. It's journalism designed to sell commercials. But it's not the truth. And if you want the truth, you have to look into it for yourself. And I'm sorry that's a lot of work. But when I see people out there protesting and demanding justice for him, when the police broke their backs, bending over backwards, trying to save his life from himself, I can't stand it. I cannot stand that yellow journalism. Drew, I'm... It I have and to you, like, I have to like take sedatives or something. A third soapbox. Yeah. When, when you say the word justice, when you keep saying justice for Najee, just, this is not just, you're not, what you're not seeking is justice because you're, what you're saying is what happened to him was unjust. It just happened. It's not unjust. What you're seeking is revenge. And that's, that's a completely different virtue than justice. Lady justice is blind. There's a blindfold in, in, you know, if that were a white guy in the bathroom, would they have negotiated for four hours and shot him when he charged out? Yes. The answer to that is yes. The negotiations didn't end. They were aborted by the subject. They were still standing there watching him flay his arm saying, please stop, please stop doing this. Now the, now, the officer that had to shoot him is going through something because he never wanted to shoot someone, let alone someone who was clearly having some kind of crisis, whether it was drug-fueled or, or a mental health problem or whatever. But you stand there watching somebody harm themselves, and that image will stay inside you. So, again, I don't want to take anything away from the Seabrooks family. I know they love their brother. They love their son. But these police officers are being affected, too. And it's not enough that they have to go to a job and see this and deal with this. But then they have to be hung out to dry by the media and their own, their own state government saying, well, you did something wrong. When I watch that, and maybe it's not perfect. Sure, there's, there's things to learn. Perhaps there's other tactics or something they could have employed. But ultimately, they were still working the case. They were still trying to do it. They were still committed and engaged to a positive outcome when he came out of the bathroom on his own, not unarmed. So that process was still going forward until he stopped it. Yes, Keith, I'm on my fourth sofa. So, <laughs> so there is, just, just so you'll know, the, the, there is... Uh, discussion afoot in the criminal justice world in the in the law enforcement world how do we handle these uh, i know that there are agencies in california that don't respond to these at all that if you're in that you know and and we've we've struggled with that too where i worked i don't know what the current policy is i'm not going to do any talking for them i can tell you in the past that if if the the subject is suicidal and they're in their home alone there's there's nobody else that that is in danger and the family is calling, yeah, we're, we're working on odd options too, like unfortunately. And as long as the neighbors aren't in danger and the people on the inside of the house aren't in danger, if they decide to take their own life, they decide to take their own life. That's kind of not, that's not our fault and it's not our business. 
because what's going to happen is we show up and we have to take the action that you don't want us to take. This, this actually exact scenario played out. There was a deputy sheriff that it was his, he had come from a specialty assignment. It was his first day back out on the street. And he got called to a guy having a mental breakdown, just like this, similar to this. The guy was sitting in a lawn chair out in the, in the driveway or something similar. And he went up to just have a casual conversation with him. And the guy charged at him with the knife. And, and what are you going to do at that point? So of course the news on the news, the, the, the family is all upset and they say, that's not what we called you here to do. But what do you expect me to do? I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take a butcher knife to the jugular. I, I don't know what you expect the police to do in a, in a situation like that. It's very unfortunate and it takes its toll on the officers. Those officers are, are, are never going to be the same and their families are never going to be the same. So, you know, I'm not begging for sympathy over him because he deserves as much, you know, empathy you can give, but you know, the 30, the, the, the previous 31 years, he may have been a saint, but that one, one day when he made that final decision, this is what happened. And this is unfortunate for everybody involved. He may still have been a saint up until that moment that he charged. And at that point, sure. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because I don't expect that police officer in that bedroom to take a knife. He deserves to go home to his family, just like Seabrooks did. And unfortunately right. Seabrooks, like I said, again, I don't want to get on a fifth soapbox, but he, he took, he took charge of that situation. The police got there. He stayed in command. And that's what he did with this command. And I'm just, I'm really sorry that it happened. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make light of, light of it at all or use his mm -hmm. death to further my own agenda because a life's been lost. And that's the biggest tragedy. But we have, as a society, we need to talk about it. And most of all, we need to talk about our news sources because I put on Instagram today a reel that showed the local ABC affiliate uh, describing how the police response to this incident was. And it's just, it's patently false. Now, I understand when you're a news reporter, and you just get to the scene, there's going to be different people talking. You're going to hear maybe some things that are wrong. People are confused. The timeline events of events has been clarified. It's been three weeks. It's time to take that video down. It's time to, it's time to have at the end of every news broadcast, five minutes instead of showing a water skiing squirrel, just say, this is the stuff we got wrong this week, folks. We're sorry about that. We did the best we can. But these are the corrections and delay the matter straight. And for, this, for our integrity, we're going to tell you what we got wrong. And here's the truth. We don't have a single news station that will say, for our integrity, we're going to tell you what we got wrong. And it's ridiculous. You know, newspapers used to print corrections. I don't know if they do anymore because I haven't looked at a newspaper in like 10 years. But I know the news isn't doing it. Right. It is a missed opportunity. Uh, and, and as you know, in this world, the, uh, the front page headline is going to be the front page headline. And the correction, if there is one, is going to be on the ninth page in the 14th paragraph. So... Uh, they're in it to make money, and what they're doing is kicking a community that's already down and kicking them down farther by perpetuating that that information and that lie. Speaking of uh, going down, Drew, if I don't pull up, I'm going to crash. So do we have some funny voicemails to play? I don't know if that's back up, but I'm sure we have some voicemails to play while you nope. set that up. I got it. Here. This is a prepaid call from... 10-6. An inmate at the county correctional facility. All phone calls are subject to recording and monitoring. To decline this call, press 9 now and to accept this call, press 1 now. Thank you. Your call has been accepted. 
Hi, Con Center. Drew and John, you are both amazing. Sorry for not being able to talk more last week. I ran out of minutes on my phone card. <laughs> Keep up the amazing show. Hashtag free, John. Dean, comrades. It's good to hear from you again, John and Drew. I hope you. I hope the comrades are doing well. Okay. Great show. Great show. Oh, damn it. I'm trying to sex when I'm on the phone. Tom Center. It's Micah. Just calling back halfway through another week. And I just want to say things are a little better. Love the show. And I, I heard Drew Breezy loud and clear about the echo issues, about the phone issues over the last few weeks. So I did something I haven't done in seven years. I updated my phone. So hopefully you can hear me crystal clear. Gonna keep calling in, gonna keep leaving messages. And yeah, Drew Breezy got me to do something my wife hasn't been able to in a long time. That's get rid of an old phone and upgrade. So hopefully you guys hear clearly. Looking forward to the next comp center. We'll see you then. Micah, that was a wonderful update to your phone. It is like we are sitting in the break room playing with the salt and pepper shakers looking longingly into one another's eyes, wondering why John is trying to butt in on our conversation about smart things. John, I have nothing else. I'm, I'm drained. I I've been beat up by equipment. I have, I, I, my, the VCR that I have used is, I didn't set it for SP. I set it for ELP. So uh, we've uh, all done that. Yeah. Where you we're running run out, out of space. Yeah. Yes. So we're probably going to wrap it up here. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with me tonight as I, I did lots of cocaine and, and, and Gatorade to be ready for the show so I could have enough energy. I woke up at six in the morning, went to work all day, and I, I'm, on st- I'm, I'm on fumes right now. I don't know how to take you out. I, I, I'll try my best. But John, who is at, at difficult to look at pictures on Instagram, I am Drew at Drew underscore Breezy. And that's it for tonight's show. Please tell four of your friends and make two of them watch it. And don't forget to tell your Aunt Sally. Good night, everybody.